study. Father, uh, we are thankful that you are a God that sees things always as they are. And because of that, you are a God who is faithful. You are dependable. It's not a promise that you've made to us that you will not fulfill. And we realize at times uh, we, because we cannot see what tomorrow brings, we cannot see beyond the next, even the next moment, we have the tendency sometimes to lack dependability, to lack faithfulness in the situations in which you allow us to be. But we're thankful that that does not, you do not change in that. And we're thankful for that. As we look at your word tonight and we think about uh, the character of these, in, these individuals and the situations in which they found themselves, that you would help us to even reflect upon the challenges that we ourselves face and to appreciate uh, your faithfulness to continue moving us along. Uh, and we thank you for this then. Amen. So we're going to put in in 1 Thessalonians 2 tonight. We're going to start in verse 13. We've already covered these verses, but I think that they're important to go back and read these as kind of a lead-in to where we're going. All of this up to this point in 1 Thessalonians is a lead-in, obviously. But without going back and reading all, every verse up here, we'll start with verse 13. I'm reading from the New American Standard. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also then works in you, in those of you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your countrymen, even as they from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost or unto the end. But we, brothers having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our joy, or hope, excuse me, or joy, or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy." So just reviewing where we were last week in the previous verses in verse 13, where he's talking about that they gave thanks because they received the word for what it was, uh, the word of God. They didn't take the word that Paul was teaching to them as just a man was speaking. They looked at it and said, oh, this is, this is God speaking to us, not Paul himself, you understand. Uh, but this is, this is the word of God. And that word then, as they learned this and took it in, it made a difference in their lives. And part of the result of that difference, and we've looked at that previous already here in First Thessalonians, that, remember, they had a work from faith, a labor from love, and patience from hope. And they had this anticipation of the Lord's coming for them. And so that change, where they switched from serving idols to serve the living and true God, waiting for him, all of that affected by taking in the word, caused them to live in such a way that, verse 14, they became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. We talked about this last week, 
that this is actually a very important passage for this word that's translated imitators because it doesn't mean you imitate by watching and then copycatting what you see them do because they're imitating the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea a long ways from Thessalonica which is up in up, up in Macedonia. I mean, we're talking a huge distance. You've got to go all the way through Turkey, through Syria, and then down into uh, what was Judea uh, to get over there. So they are hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and they have had no conduct. In fact, when Paul writes this, if you remember, as we said last week, Paul writes this in a very short space of time after they've been there, probably within a month or two of having visited them. He writes this letter back because of his concerns, which we've been already looking at, and we're going to see more of that when we get into chapter 3. The reason they were imitators is because their lives were changed by the word of God in the same way that the churches in Judea, their lives were changed. And when, the Christ, when those Jews in Judea began to live differently, it brought persecution on them so that these people suffered at the hands of their countrymen same thing was happening in, happening in Thessalonica. And we talked about that last week. Remember, you have Jews that become very upset with Paul's message. They get some people wound up in the, in the circle, the city center, and get those people to form a mob. They throw the city into a turmoil and then blame that on Paul, by the way, <coughs> even though they're the cause. And they grab some of the men of the church and drag them out of their homes and drag them before the city officials and make them put up a bond that Paul will be quiet and Paul won't say anything anymore. And I, I keep saying this. I used Gary and I's examples last week. If, if they ask, we're in 1 Thessalonians 2 and we're still in verse 14. We're, I'm just reviewing from last week to build the case for where we're going tonight it's important to get this, um, that Paul says, that Paul says, or Luke tells us that they had to put up a bond. And I was just trying to illustrate it, that if they, made, if they made Gary and I put up, if the city made Gary and I put up a bond to keep something from happening, to guarantee that we would behave, <laughs> and they asked us to both put up $1,000, neither of us would want to pay that. But both of us could pay $1,000, and it's not like it's going to break the bank and that we're going to go, oh, we're destitute, you know, you've taken everything from us. But if they started asking us to put up $10,000 or $20,000, you started to go, oh, what a, wait a minute. So I'm just trying to put it in perspective. I'm not, I, we don't know how big the bond was, but the bond has to be big enough to make it hurt. You understand? You don't ask, you don't ask for a pittance of a bond. You ask for something that's sizable. And that causes problems for the people. And it's not just one person. It's some of these men that have, that have become associated with Paul, that they're threatened in this way. And then he goes through and he gives this, this description of what ends up happening with, with regard to the people of Israel, the Jews, the unsaved Jews, and how they acted. Now we come down to verse 17. All that's providing us some background then for what we have in verse 17. Uh, um in fact, I think of one other verse that, for some reason, I didn't even catch it last night when I was reading through this again. But if you went back to the first part of chapter 2, he said that they were receiving this word in a lot of opposition. So there was hostility and opposition going on. So now verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while. And um, Peggy, 
how does the ESV read there in verse 17? Oh, you were in the middle writing a note. I'm sorry. If you return away from me, brothers, for a short time, and seek them not in heart, and endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Okay. And the ESV translates this word torn away. I, I, I couldn't remember what it was, but I, I, because I'd read this out of the ESV several times, I think I would remember. New American Standard has, we have been taken away there in verse 17. Does anybody else have a different kind of something? Holman says, we were forced to leave you for a short time. Okay, forced to leave you. Okay. The word, and this is, I think, very important because what's the image that Paul's been giving? What's the image that Paul's been giving of himself and the Thessalonian believers here in chapter 2 especially? What kind of a relationship did he has he been illustrating? Father and children. Good. Because the Greek word that he uses here is the word apo orphano. Anybody hear that in there? The word orphan comes from this. It means to be separated so as to cause an orphan. And so this this isn't just a this isn't just a separation term that he's using here. He's actually using a term here that describes a family relationship that has been severed, separated, uh, causing children to be orphaned, except in this case, Paul is using this of himself. <laughs> I've been orphaned. We don't normally think of a, a parent as the one being orphaned, but that's the way he looks at it in this way, that we have been separated from you. We've been orphaned from you for a time. An hour, he even goes on to say. So that's he kind of that's why the New American Standard is for a short while because it has the word time, meaning a season. But then he follows it immediately with the word hour. Okay, so it's a short time, an hour. Just trying to put it in perspective. This is hard sometimes for us to realize. I find this interesting that Paul is says, you know, you guys meant so much to us. It was you were like children to us. I felt like a parent to you. And then when we had to leave, it would be like a parent having to been separated from his children. Horrible situation for any parent to be in. And Paul looks at that as true of himself. But he says, only in person. Only face to face. Because in heart he's indicating, I'm still there with you. And he does say that. Only in person, not in heart. New American Standard says, not in spirit. But it is not the word pneuma it's the word cardia, heart. So it's in heart that they've been separated. And as a result, we were more abundant. What do you mean by heart? An emotional term or is he I think when he's using heart here, he's using it emotionally. He, sep- he says, in a heart we're separated. Yeah, there's, a, there's the pain of a separation. No, in a person, not in a heart. What? Because not in Oh, yes, in person, not in heart. Yes. So in heart, we're still there with you is what he's getting at, you see? So I, I, he says, I, and I think maybe that's why the New American Standard is using the word spirit here to try to represent this, but it's not. And he says, it, says, in our minds, as we think about this, as we relate to you with our emotions and everything, we're still there. We're still present with you as we look at this, kind of bringing all of this together. Uh, and I think all of you, I hope all of you can relate to this, that even you know when you're physically separated from a person, there's that part of you that, and it's not just mentally, just your rational thoughts. It's emotionally you feel, I'm still there. 
it's that combination of all of these things and the way you decide. Because normally we think of the heart as making decisions. The heart in every passage doesn't have a heavy emphasis on decisions in absolutely every passage, but there is some decision making because that's what it's doing. And so as Paul's thinking about these people, he says, we're still there. And now he's going to show you what, in his mind, he would choose to do. Here's this decision now. More abundantly than we were diligent. We really kept at it. We didn't, it's not like we were letting off. We kept at it to see your face with much uh, desire, great desire the New American Standard has. Uh, it's our word for lust or craving, to crave for something intensely, to lust after something intensely. Just remember lust in this case is a, as a good sense. It doesn't have any bad connotation to it. In other words, we really crave to see you guys. We really want to see you again. I don't like being away from you. Verse 18, and therefore we deter, or we desired, not determined, excuse me, therefore we desired to come to you. I, Paul, once and twice. In other words, he, they've been gone long enough that Paul actually has been through the process where he's really wanted to come to them and two times had this desire, wanting to go, but Satan hindered us. Now, this is what I kind of wanted to spend our evening with, and if we don't get past this into the following verses, we'll be okay with that. But what, what does he mean that Satan hindered us? Now, maybe some of you would be able to answer this real easy, and it's not that big of a deal. But it's one of those things that I've thought about. What would, what would Satan do that would make it impossible or ex, at the very least very, very hard to proceed and do something that you really want to do? Something that... And I think that this is exactly what it is. I think it's, I, I think it's understanding that Satan manipulates a lot of things around us in the world and as satan manipulates things he can cause certain things to happen in such a way that it keeps us from doing accomplishing other things so i want to take a look at some of these passages that talk to us i gotta switch pages and notes here at this point but i want to look at some passages that talk a little bit about satan most of us when we think of satan we think of satanic attack we think of discouragement, we think of pride, we think of doubt. These are the things that we think of when we uh, think of what Satan does. But there are other things that Satan is involved in around us that, that we need to take quite seriously. So let's go. I've got a, a number of these verses that I would like to look at. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 26. And when you get there, turn to verse 18. Acts 26 and 18 is Paul's, and I'm just jumping into this section because there's a lot of things I could get distracted with. So he says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion or authority of Satan to that of God, so that they might receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. This is what Jesus Christ is saying, not in Paul. But he says here in verse 18, 
It's from the authority of Satan. So, again, from as as God's looking at this, as Paul is, is quoting this, referring to what Jesus Christ has said here, he looks at the fact that the unsaved people are under the authority of Satan. It's an important thing, I think, for all of us to remember when we, because you and I live and move among, let's put it this way, probably, again, in our community, I really don't know, but I'm just going to, I'm going to be optimistic and say 5% of the people in our community are real believers and 95% are not. That means we're not just in the minority. We are, we are just a scratch on, uh, of, in the minority of all the people that make up this this area. And I think that that's true in probably just about any place you go in the world. Uh, unless you, you know, unless you go to some big Christian conference with a whole bunch of people and you got a couple thousand people all with together, then maybe it's a little different. But most of the time it's not. And to keep in mind that all these people out there, they're not just unsaved. They're people that are actually operating within the, with under the authority of Satan. That's an important thing to keep in mind. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is one of those verses that, let's put it this way. I didn't learn this verse until I was probably 20 to 21 years old. I, maybe I had a pastor or something that read through this. Maybe even taught it and I didn't pay attention to it. But I don't ever remember this. And so, I mean, I grew up, any of you ever know what, remember the chick tracks? They were little cartoon tracks that were about like this, and they had like a comic book. They were usually in black and white and maybe one other color in there. Well, that guy that did the chick tracks when I was in junior high or first in high school, he actually published some full-size comic books, and he had like this, these big guys in T-shirts with ripped like this, and there were two guys, and they traveled the world with Bibles, and they were fixing things. And, of course, one of the things they had to do with some of these comic books is coming across Satan worshipers, who are always people in black hoods that are off out in the woods like they're going to sacrifice children and such. And granted, that kind of stuff has gone on. But see, that's what you grow up with in lots of churches when you think about Satan's ministers, is you think about those kind of people. And what Paul says here, I think most Christians, I'm not talking about religious people, most Christians don't know this. And I think it would do them a lot of good to know what he says here. So let's go to verse 12. But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off an opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be considered like us in the matter about which we are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. They don't put on black hoods and walk around and do sneaky things with knives and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants are also disguised themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Which again, means, well, I'm just going to put this very plainly, a lot of men in churches, pastoring churches, are not believers. I grew up in a town. We had 
there's five churches in the little town I grew up in. A town of 400 people. 400 people, we had five churches. Of course, you, got a lot, you have people living in the country that come to church. And of those, the only person that I knew that was a Christian was my pastor. I don't think the Catholic priest probably was a Christian. He was drunk. That Not that that means he was unsaved, but he wasn't. No good reason to believe that he was. We, my mom had a really good friend that would come over and talk to my mom about her Catholicism and what the priest would say about just keep praying, you know, that hopefully that, you know, they'll get in, we'll get enough grace down here that will help, help you with your children's problems and such like that. The Methodist minister, point blank, Point blank in a in a adult education class that my mom happened to be taking at the public school that he was leading. Point blank said you can't get to heaven without baptism. And then in another class, the Lutheran minister told her the same thing: you can't get to heaven, you can't get saved without baptism. We had another Baptist church in town. Well, that's true with spirit baptism. Yeah, but they're talking water baptism. They don't. Those people didn't even know what spirit baptism was. You're talking about that, and they look at you, and their eyes roll back in their head, like, what in the world? <laughs> Ever to them, baptism, all it means. In fact, if you ask most Christians about baptism, all they know is water baptism. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've, I've gone into churches, yeah, sprinkling, yeah, sprinkling, which isn't really baptism. It's a totally different thing. So I'm just trying to say, I mean, I grew up in a town of 400 people, and three of the other churches, the men that were leading those churches weren't believers. And yet they were really nice guys. Well, I can I don't know about the priest. He was always kind of gruff with me when I'd go to collect for the newspaper. But the other guys, the Lutheran and the Methodist guy, were nice guys. I never knew the the pastor at the other Baptist church because he lived in another town and, and drove in every week. But again, I'm just saying this because it's re always, it's easy for us to think that when you talk to pe to men that are pastoring churches. They must be Christians. And yet, I still remember uh, many years ago, maybe you've heard him say this, but Sasha was talking about after he got saved, he didn't know anything. He didn't know what these were. So he went around to all these churches all over Moses Lake, and not a single church that he went into at that time. Now, granted, this is 20 years ago, but he couldn't find a pastor in one of those churches that could tell, tell him what the gospel was. Not one pastor. And he came by, by the gospel by reading it in the Bible. <laughs> so Sasha came to it. And I, Dan ran into him, and they were talking. And the, he, Sasha kind of starts talking God stuff. So Dan's like, okay, I'll gospel check you. And he asks him what the, and Sasha goes to God. And Dan's like, where'd you learn that? He says, well, reading the Bible. <laughs> but then Sasha was talking about, and, and granted, I, and I always say this, there, there's a chance that there maybe was a pastor at the time that he was going around that maybe would believe the gospel, but like me growing up, maybe you don't articulate it because you're constantly hearing all this other garbage that replaces the gospel and that's the stuff that you spew. Yeah, ask Jesus into your heart. That's not what people... I used to tell people that all the time. I, I would never have denied the gospel, but I didn't know how you were supposed to respond to the gospel other than believing. you got to have people do something that you can see so you do this other nonsense anyway. I've had people think I, when I mentioned gospel, they would think I was talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So once you get past that, it's easier to know where they're at. <laughs> yeah. To understand that they haven't heard too much. Or,
anyway, before we leave this passage, I was going to say one more time. I think this passage is important for us to, to recognize that it, we shouldn't be shocked too much when we run into people that are supposed to be religious leaders leading churches and they don't, they don't really believe. They don't believe what we believe. They're moral people. He says they're ministers of righteousness, which means they're trying to help people be good people. So they're not telling people to go out and sin it up and be immoral and all this other. They're telling people to be good people. Okay? But they're not telling people what the gospel is. So from here, let's go to Revelation chapter 2. When you get to Revelation 2, Verse 13. If you're, going to, if you're just to look back in verse 12, you see he's writing to the church of Pergamum, and he says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You think you think Satan maybe had something to do with the death of this faithful witness when he's mentioned at the beginning of this statement and at the end of this statement? Yeah. He, he couldn't touch him personally, but he could yeah. yeah. manipulate these people that were worshiping false god. I, we've told you this before we've gone through Revelation. One of the things that, that, that Pergamum was known for was the altar of Zeus. Zeus, remember, was the chief god among the, the Greek gods. They called it, the Romans called him Jupiter, but Zeus. And this was the great, the great altar of Zeus. It was in Pergamum. So the chief of the gods, and at that time, this he says, this is where Satan's throne was. Go back to the Old Testament. Satan's throne was apparently in Babylon for a while, and then in Tyre for a while. So Satan moves it around to different locales. Uh, and maybe he doesn't have his throne just in one place. Maybe he's got multiple thrones in different places. But the point, whether this is talking, I don't, Satan's not a physical being, so he doesn't have to have a physical throne, but you get a place, his base of operation. And he had something to do with this. Something to do with this. And he says, you, verse 13, you have held fast to my name and you have not denied faith concerning me. In other words, apparently when they were put under the gun, See, that they would, would put to the knife back then or put to the sword. They wouldn't have guns back then. Basically holding a, a sword or a knife to a person's throat or to their chest and threatening them. Deny Jesus. Deny Jesus. He says, and you guys did not do this. Even when one of your own physically died for this cause. Being, as he says, a faithful one. A faithful, my witness. He says, but you guys didn't do it either. You guys didn't deny. You guys held fast. It's an important thing. I hope we never come to that. But it has happened many times in the history of the church that believers have been put to the sword in one way or another. Not only does he say this here in 2.13, but if we look on down... Oh, it's back. i got to back up here. That's what it is. got to go back to Smyrna for a minute. Go back to verse... 2.10 and 
verse 9, he says, I know then your tribulation or your adversity, your poverty, but you really are rich. So these people, I think, really, were, this really was a poor church. And the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews, but they're not. They're rather a synagogue of Satan, which we're not going to chase down what that is. Do not fear what you were about to suffer. Now, they're, not, they're going through some hardship right now, but he says, but you're going to suffer something else. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation or adversity for 10 days. <coughs> but be faithful, even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Does anybody remember from James 1 what the crown of life is given for? Life. Faithfulness in what? Yeah. Let's go over to James 1 and take a quick look at what, what this is for. James 1. When you get there, go to verse 12. James 1.12 says, Blessed or happy is the man who perseveres or literally is patient under temptation. That word trial in the American Standard is the word for temptation. It's a test that expects someone to fail under temptation. For once he has been proved, he's been proved to pass. He passed the test. That's the idea. Then he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Here he's saying, one of the ways that you love the Lord is by under temptation, not giving into temptation. That's one of the ways that you love the Lord. Okay. So, having understood this, let's go back over there to Revelation chapter 2 in verse 10. He says, some of you are about to suffer something because Satan is about to cast some of you, he doesn't say the whole church, but some of you into prison, and you're going to endure, you're going to be tested, or you're going to undergo temptation, which we have the same verb here, or the verb form of the word of the noun that we had over in James, and you will then have tribulation, adversity. Remember, adversity is pressure, a lot of pressure that comes from me, and it's negative, it's miserable pressure. When we think of the Great Tribulation, it's God pouring out his pressure in terms of his anger on the earth for the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week, and that's tribulation. And he says, but you're going to have it for 10 days. Now, there's two ways to understand 10 days. We can take it figuratively, which some people do, saying, uh, there's a number of commentaries they have in Revelation that they believe the ten days refers not to ten literal days, but to ten figurative days because there were ten persecutions in the early part of the church. And I've looked at those and I've thought, yeah, you kind of could push it. I'm inclined to say literally it is ten days. I just think that's the easiest, safest way to go. But I think that there's something more significant to the ten days. It's other than the fact that it's a literal 10 days. What would you take away from, you're going to have to go through something for 10 days? It's not that long. Yeah. Now, if he said 10 years, we'd go, oh. Isn't that, wouldn't that be the response? 10 months even, you'd go, oh. <laughs> you know, those are that we, but 10 days? 
any of us could go, oh, that doesn't sound like fun, but I can do, I can handle 10 days of this. I can, it's going to be tough. It's going to be not, it's going to be miserable, but I can do 10 days. Well, potentially, because he says, be faithful even to the point of death. So apparently some of them, if not all of them, are going to potentially be tempted or be, they're going to face death. Yes. If you're tortured, 10 days would be yes. a really long time. It really would. Yeah. It yeah. really would. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not trying to make, I'm not trying to make light of the 10 days, but I just think in 10 days is saying, it's just putting it in perspective. It is still short. And any time that we live on this earth in reality is what? Vapor. It's a vapor. Yeah, it's exactly. James says that. Our life's a vapor. Yeah. 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 <laughs> if you think it's going to go on and on forever, you know. I'm going to, at the end of the week, I'm going to turn 56. I'm like, are you kidding me? We're talking about vapor. <laughs> <laughs> vapor. Oh. It's a vapor. Vapor. Oh. It's like a vapor. Like a vapor, yeah. Yeah. But you do reach a point in life which you're like, man, I, you know, I, I've told you guys the joke before. <laughs> it's like you spend all your life in the little red wagon trying to get up the hill. One knee in the wagon. You, know, you ever do that? Where you put one knee in the wagon, you got the handle, and you're pushing yourself down the sidewalk, but you're going uphill, going uphill. And by the time you get to the top of the hill, the little red wagon isn't quite fit for going down the other side like you thought it was going to be fun when you were a kid. And that wheels are going like this. and you're <laughs> Do you ever feel like that? <laughs> well, I... Sometimes I do. It's just like, oh, you're afraid the wheels are going to come off at any minute. Um, and it's, seriously, my, I'm not that bad yet. Granted, but it is just the fact that you realize it's picking up speed and things don't, things just don't work like they used to. And it's just like, oh, wow. So, yeah, it is a vapor. Life, it, life really is when you stop to think of it. It seems so slow when you're young. Eventually, you find out, wow, it's just like this. Didn't, didn't the year just start? And it puts it in perspective. Puts it in perspective. My poor wife has to live with a guy that can be a real whiner about stuff like this. Like, seriously, you guys don't know this because you don't live with her. She hardly ever complains about stuff. She might blow her top over something briefly for a moment, but she doesn't really complain and sulk. Her husband can be kind of a whiner about, I don't like this. This thing hurts. This is not fun. And she, and she, she has to live with this. But when you stop it all, I think it, putting life into perspective always reminds us it's a vapor. It's short. And Paul, or Paul, excuse me, Jesus Christ is the one that is telling these people here that it is, he says, it's 10 days. And probably a very a literal 10 days. And it probably was going to be miserable. It's not like going to the county jail up here. Where, you know, you watch cable TV or whatever's on the yeah. wall. And maybe play ping pong in the rec room. And, you know, they bring you three. You were lucky if they brought you a chunk of bread and some really thin broth every day. And maybe some water to drink. And everybody went to the bathroom in the same corner of the cell. And you're lay laying in there with all these other filthy, dirty people. Just trying to put it in perspective. <laughs> Don't equate being jailed like us today with jail back then. Jail back then, they figured if you were if you did the crime, you're going to do that time. You're going to, it's really going to be bad. They want you to really suffer. And this is orchestrated by Satan. And he says... You know, when you talk about this, uh, 
this can lead to persecutions and beheadings mm -hmm. of Christians in the Muslim world. And I'm always amazed they just go they go to death absolutely quiet and peaceful. Mm -hmm. And so reading this, it just kind of reminds me of that faithful to death. Yeah. Jesus has promised to send the seven lines. Yeah. I mean, they don't even beg for their life or anything. They just accept it and chop their heads off right there. Mm -hmm. It's not way back. It's not. It's going on right now. Yeah. 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 There's been a couple of pastors were chopped up to death in uh, the Congo last, like in the last month. Last, yes, right. We were in Papua New Guinea. There's a guy named Tim Schleifer. He was a Bush missionary like Ben and Josh. But he was itinerant. And he was teaching on the center, the Book of Romans. It's really good. And started almost every study off with a three-minute worldwide persecution thing that's going on in the world. It's powerful. It never makes the news. Yeah. Never. They don't care about Christians being chopped up. Yeah, but then notice what he's yeah. Let's let's finish let's let me just finish the last part of verse ten yet. Be faithful then until the point of death. That doesn't mean they're all going to die, but some of them may die. I was put in perspective. The last what was the last thing Rome did to Paul? Chopped his head off. And how did Paul look at that? The Lord's gonna rescue you. He, said, he uses the same word that the Lord rescued him the first time from the lion's mouth, but the Lord's going to rescue him this time, but he's going to rescue him by dying because the, the worst thing they could do is actually the best thing. In fact, it's the very thing that Paul, when he wrote Philippians in chapter 1, Paul said, that's what I want. And I just, it was really interesting. I just listened to somebody do a talk on that recently in a Bible study, and I was like, oh, I really appreciated it because he made the comment that Paul could easily, if, if Paul were selfish and just wanted to go home, he could have submarined his his yeah. testimony before Caesar, and he could have been thrown to he could have been thrown to the lines if that's what he wanted to do. But he knew that eh, it was more important for him to stick around for the sake of the Thessalonians for a while. But at the end of his life, he was ready. He goes, "I am dog tired. I have finished the race. I am ready to go home, and the Lord is going to rescue me." And that's a, it really it, quite a thing to think about. That there's this crown of life that he has for those that love him, and they love him enough that they endure temptation. And what would be the temptation in this context then? To deny Christ. To deny Christ. And will you go to heaven if you deny Christ? Yeah. Yes. In fact, Paul, to some degree, Paul even says that in Second Timothy, Second Timothy too. He says if you deny Christ, he still remains faithful in this. He may you deny you. Deny Christ and you will. Yeah. Yeah. So, he says, I'll give you a crown. And then Peg is encouraging us to go on and read verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, if you find yourself in this situation, if this statement is applicable to you as part of the church, which it, it may be, then that you can be a victor because you believe the gospel and you can remember, hey, 
I'm not going to be hurt by anything that comes from the second death. I may die the first death. They may, take, they may take my head off. They may throw me to the lions. They may do whatever they're going to do. But the second death, it's not just that I'm not going to experience it. It's that I'm not even going to be pained by the second death. Anything that comes from the second death isn't even going to hurt me. You and I are all going to stand with Jesus Christ as he judges the world. And I have got, I have good friends, and I have relatives, people that have been close to me, that will be there. And I will not shed a tear. I will not grieve. I will not hurt. I will not be pained. That's a beautiful promise. I have to endure tribulation down here. But God's not going to take me up to heaven and be with him and then make me endure tribulation all over again when I stand at the great white throne, not as a recipient of judgment, but as one that's standing with the judge. It's a beautiful promise that he gives us here, that nothing is going to affect us. This is where we suffer, <laughs> but we're not going to suffer out there, despite what some Christians would have us believe. Um. Let's go to Acts 10. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. And I think, I just, just pointing this out, what, what Peter says here, this, we've got other passages that would tell us this, but Peter's rehearsing with the household of Cornelius what Jesus did during his earthly life. And he says, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how we went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed or literally pressed down by the devil for God was with him. And that's showing you that those people we read at the beginning in Acts 26 that they're under the authority of the devil. It's not like they're going, ooh, party time. He actually says, you know, these those very people, they're actually being oppressed by Satan. Those unsaved people, those people that are his citizens, he doesn't really care for them. They are pawns in his purpose. He is so stinking selfish that he doesn't in the end really care for them. Does everybody get that? So he oppresses people because that is not what he, he's concerned about. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, sorry. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead... I'm sorry. Okay, Ephesians 2 1 to start with. And you were dead by means of your trespasses and the sins in which you formerly walked, according to the literally the age, which is of the qualities where the word course is the word age. I don't know why they translate it course, but the age which is like this world, according to or by the standard of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And that word working that he uses is the same word we had last week in verse 13 or 14, I believe it was, in Second or 1 Thessalonians 2, 
where it's talking about God's work, work working personally. And we talked about that Greek word energeo, which means to in work, but it always has the idea of a personal work. And so what it's saying here is Satan, verse 2, really is working in these people. He hasn't just kind of given a general idea. I believe he has, in all of these individuals, one of his demons specifically working to cause these people to be sons of disobedience, and they're out there working. So again, we're not only living among people that are under the authority of Satan, people that Satan is taking advantage of and, and oppressing, but there are also people, many of them, I don't know if we'd say this is true of all of them, but at least many of them, Satan actually is working in them as sons of disobedience. So, if you stop and think about it, believers are kind of, we're, we're like people that God's thrown not over in some safe zone, but he's thrown us right into the middle of their army. Their forces are all around, and we're just kind of tossed out there in the middle of this, surrounded by these people. They're around us all day. And we deal with these people around us. And as he works among these, and he says, well, his point here in chapter 2 is, we used to work, act like these guys, and he is still actively working among these people. And so as he uses these people to accomplish his purpose, sometimes we're the object of what he's trying to do. And let's go to chapter 6 here in Ephesians. where he's going to walk, walk them up through, through the armor of God, through these sets of thoughts to kind of reset their thinking with regard to different matters. And he says, and we're not going through all of this, but he says, verse 12, for our struggle, our wrestling match, is not against flesh and blood. Now, again, we've, we've talked about this before. I think in the context of Ephesians, his main point is, these other people in your church are not the problem. It's real easy in the, in the Ephesian church for us to think, if those guys just be nice and treat me well, I'd be okay. But they're not treating me well. So it's their, it's their fault. They're like little kids, right? Why aren't you, why aren't you nice? I'm not going to associate with them because they're not yeah. Jews. Yeah, I'm not going to associate with them because they're, they're not Jews. Or I'm not going to associate with them because they're not Gentiles. Or they are Jews. And those and the Jewish Christians, they all think they're better than us. And so then you can be snide back at them, right? This, this is kind of the problem. There's a definitely, you can see definitely see a Jewish-Gentile split problem going on in this church for what he has to walk them through back in chapter 2. And you can definitely see that they've got this kind of this division going on in here. And so, the, but he says, our wrestling, it's not with flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, the real problem are the spirit beings that are manipulating events around us. And, you know, sometimes maybe they actually have even gotten to your best Christian friend and they're gotten them under a satanic attack and into that satanic attack that you maybe caught a little bit of the fallout from that or whatever it might be. But he says, it's not them. It's not those people, really. It's Satan. You need to keep this in mind. 
And sometimes, well, let's put it this way. Why didn't Satan show up to Adam in the garden and say, Adam, did God really say that you can't eat from every tree of the garden? And I think Adam would have gone, no, God didn't tell me that. God told me, don't eat from that tree right there. The rest of them, he says, oh, they're all good for food. Adam would have, would have responded. But it wasn't Adam that Satan attacked first. He came and attacked Eve because he, I, just plain and simple. I, I don't think it's a, I don't think I have to read a ton into the passage in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Eve's Adam's soft spot. Because Adam had been alone, and he knew that there wasn't any others like him. And Satan goes, you know, the best way to get to them is to go through her. And then I can get him to do it. Remember, when she does it, what she does is wrong. It's a transgression, according to Paul. But Adam's the one charged with sin, because Adam knows what he's doing. She is completely confused. And did she sin? The Bible never says she sinned. And we'd say, why, why isn't that sin? You know why it wasn't sin? Because sin is defiance to God. She wasn't openly defying God. The, the word that Paul uses twice of her, once in 1 Timothy 2 and once in, in 2 Corinthians 11, is a word that indicates she wasn't just deceived, she was completely deceived. I'm convinced by the time Satan got done dealing with her, she thought, oh, I didn't get the rule right. I'm supposed to do this. But Adam knew what he was doing. And just, to, I think we need to always put that in perspective, that sometimes, sometimes Satan knows that the best way to get at us is not just us straight on right in the face, it's to come at us from the side with somebody that we're not expecting it from. Somebody that's important to us in our life, maybe a, our best friend at church, maybe our spouse, maybe one of our kids, maybe a parent, I don't know, but he uses one of and he uses them, but they're just a pawn in this. He gets, he attacks them, gets them kind of messed up, and then he attacks us. And so all of this is just to put in perspective, Satan's always about trying to manipulate people to accomplish his purpose. And having said that, this is about what he's dealing with believers, but I want to go to the last passage in this part of this discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And these are not believers, by the way. We're going to read these verses. The Corinthians are believers, but not this. I want to go to verse 7. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7. He says, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, that which is hidden, which God predestined before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And I would understand rulers to not be limited to the people, the Jewish leaders, or the Roman leaders, or Herod. Well, Herod, I guess, was technically the Roman leader. It was not limited to those men that say, said, crucify him, away with him, or Herod, or Pilate that says, take him away. I wash my hands of it. It's not limited to those people. We've been over this before. It also includes those spirit beings that stand behind these people and motivate them. In fact, in John 8, Paul or Jesus himself says as much. He says, why do you guys want to kill me? Oh, I know, because you're from your father, the devil, and he's been a manslayer from the beginning. 
He's never cared really about who gets in his way. And so Jesus, before he ever dies, he knows that Satan's behind these men. He knows what the men are doing. He knows that that they're being manipulated. They're pawns of Satan. They're, they're, I would say they're willing pawns. I don't think they're just total dupes in this. They're willing to participate. Now, all of that then, to put this in perspective, if we go back to 1 Thessalonians 2, I have a question for you to think about. Paul says here in verse 18, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. What I've tried to demonstrate is I, I don't think Paul was tempted. If Paul was if Paul was saying Satan tempted us and I gave in to the temptation so we didn't come, well, that's on Paul then because he chose not to respond well. But he says Satan hindered us, and I think it goes back to what Leslie's saying. He has a concern and a care for the Thessalonians. And he does not want to go back there and make those guys lose their bond, which is going to cause, I would have to say, it's going to have to cause those guys substantial financial hardship if they have to forego that bond. He, so he doesn't want to go back for that. But all of that's because he's looking at Satan hindering this. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to take you through all this, but if you go to Acts chapter 17, Paul leaves Thessalonica. He gets down to Berea. And the situation in Berea goes well, doesn't it? No, same thing that happened in Thessalonica happens in Berea. Same thing that happens. There's resistance. The Jews come down there. They, they cause problems. Paul goes to Athens. And he deals with the philosophers. And the philosophers, for the most part, laugh Paul off of Mars Hill. There are some who believe. Just like there were some who believed in Berea and some who believed in Thessalonica. But the majority of these people remained hostile. He gets to Corinth. And hostility raises up. But after what happened in... And how did all this start off? Paul's first place he stops when he gets into Macedonia was Philippi. How did that resistance go? What happened to Paul? He got beat. He wasn't just thrown in jail. He was beaten. He was beaten severely. He and Silas both. They go from from Philippi from being beaten to, to Thessalonica. God does a great work in the Thessalonian believers. They get saved. Some great things happen. We've been going through this, and Paul's excited about that. But Paul basically gets run out of town for this, to save those people. Gets to Berea, he runs into to hostility. He gets to... Athens, he runs into hostility. He gets to Corinth and he runs into hostility. And when you read Corinth, Corinthians, or not Corinthians, but when you read Acts, the account when he gets there, Paul leaves and goes and stays in a house. And the Lord has to tell him, stop being afraid. Open your mouth. I'm not done. I've got a lot of people left in this city. Paul is ready to toss it in in Corinth. Paul ended up staying for 18 months. That's pretty substantial from a guy who in a short space of time figured, we're done here. Can't do this anymore. It's hard. In fact, I just share an interesting, an interesting point. Go back and read that tonight there when Paul gets to Corinth. Read what the Lord tells him. He says, you do this. He says, nobody's going to put upon you to harm you. 
And you know how what one of the things that happens when he's in Corinth? It's a citywide riot that goes on, and they drag one, and they go before one of their leaders and factually, and then the leader goes, "Oh, this is a question about your religion. I thought that this was a legal problem. Go take care of it yourself." <laughs> and the people that started the riot, they beat their own leader. <laughs> they beat him up right there, and the guy doesn't even care. He just lets him beat beat this guy up down there. But Paul goes away. Scotford. Paul goes. To, to Ephesus. And when he gets to Ephesus, as, see, as long as Paul keeps doing what the Lord wants, Paul doesn't, Paul there meets resistance, but Paul himself never comes to any harm from that point on. And he gets to Ephesus, and he's there for over two years. And they've get that insane thing. I always think some Sunday mob in the stands at some great big NFL football field, they're everybody chanting, you know, you know, you always know what happens when the refs mess up a, a real key play and everybody disagrees. Fans can be real nasty, <laughs> you know. And you get these people that that chant for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Do you imagine what the, the Ephesian Christians were starting to think? This isn't going to end well. But you know what ends up happening? The leader of the city hushes them down. He goes, you guys could be accused of illegal riot and illegal assembly. This is not going well. This is what their own leader tells them. And they all go home. And Paul is okay. And I just share all that because Paul goes through a lot of this. Now, I'm just saying that I think as Paul wants to go back, this constant resistance he's getting is one of the things that Satan is using to make Paul realize, if I go back and do this, it's just going to start, it's just going to be throwing another match into that. And I want those believers to progress. They don't have everything yet. We're going to see that when we get to 1 Thessalonians 3. But Paul doesn't want to go back because he cares enough for them that he doesn't want to put them in harm. So he's going to stay out of it personally, and he's going to have somebody else intervene. Okay, you're he sends Timothy. We'll see that when we get to chapter. I, I, you know, yes. The, uh, the instructions not have the Holy Spirit and trying to have them share out. So there's a difference between <coughs> what he was deciding here versus being afraid. That's right. Yeah. I think he's just, what you can see in here is he has a real concern for these people. And Satan is using this to just solidify it really is too dangerous. I don't think for Paul himself. I th and this is my take on it, uh, because uh, you get you get different different people understand his statement that Satan hindered us. They understand it differently, but I understand that that, that what Satan's doing that Paul realizes I, if I go back, I'm going to put the Thessalonians in too much danger. They've already endured enough. I'm not going to intentionally put them in a position where they're going to suffer more. Now, Paul does go back and visit some of these cities, but quite a bit of time passes. He doesn't show up when, you know, four months later or five months later when they go, oh, we remember you. He's going to show up a couple years later after these people, uh, it, more than a couple years later. Okay. Hang on, why? Oh, he does. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and as I hopefully you, you you understood, I don't think Paul I don't think Paul's being motivated by fear. 
here. I don't think he's coming succumbing to satanic attack. He just recognizes Satan is using all these unbelievers all along the way to make it nigh impossible to go back and retrace these steps at this time. Not just for his own physical safety, but for the sake of those people in these other cities. For the believer, the few people that believed in Athens, the people that believed in Berea, the people that believed in Thessalonica. Paul doesn't even go back to Philippi. He sends he sends other people back to Philippi to deal with the problems there. So, okay. Now, I, I know this Bible study is going longer than maybe what what we want to do, but I just want to ask you this question: What was so special about Thessalonica in this situation that Satan would actually exert so much pressure to hinder? Paul's ministry. That they actually were going to do the work for the Lord? <laughs> Not that they were, but that they were doing it. They actually were doing it. Is that what you're trying to say? I just want to make sure. Either way, yeah. Yeah. Because that's what he says back in chapter 1. He says, remembering your work from faith, your labor from love, and your patience from hope. They were doing these things. They were, they were, <laughs> Paul was like really excited for how their lives changed. And remember what he said about their testimony? Go back up in chapter 1, just to remind yourselves of this. I, I just always love this statement that he makes. I can get this back. I think it's verse 8 is where we want. For the word of the Lord echoed forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia is where Corinth it was down to the south, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so we have we have no need to say anything. In other words, there was such a dramatic change in the lives of these Thessalonian believers that Paul says it was like an echo that was going out ahead of us as we travel. Well, that's right. That's right. Which then, that means that's God's work. Satan didn't like that. What? Satan didn't like that. And Satan didn't like that. When I read this verse that Satan hinders hinders Paul from going, I have often thought, um, just through the process of the Bali's work, that Satan has hindered that work so much because um, just with the issues with our partners and like Josh is continually putting out fires when a solar panel is stolen, it's a week two week ordeal that stops the work. And he has to go out, get the police, and do all this stuff, and the whole village is in an uproar, and he can't, we can't do any work. We can't actually learn the language. And, um, and then we've had random people, like, r write letters to um, our leadership saying, oh, we want payment um, for these houses, and you guys owe us money, and stuff like that. It's just PNG way of trying to get more money, and um, and our leadership, they said, I haven't seen a work have so many issues in the beginning days. They just said, Bali has had so many issues, and like, gosh, we started the work like five, six years ago now, and we're like halfway done with language, and I'm like, I look back at it, I'm like, 
saying you're an engineering pastor right now because every time we've been in there, like with it's just Josh and I, and when we can't, we're doing language. We're trying our best to get language, get language, get language, and try to get the work going forward. And then Josh is just like putting yeah. out more fires, it putting out more fires. Some of the examples that we looked at for my was uh, illness. Yeah, and now I'm sick. <laughs> I know, and I'm like, okay, Dad, you've taught us a lot. I've we like going through that trial, all these trials, and we learned a lot, still learning a lot, and just okay. You know what? We're gonna work in God's timing here, and He's teaching us. But yeah, we gotta keep pushing forward, even though it's like I thought we would have a church. By now, and because I was like, dude, look at the language in a year and a half. No worries, it's an easy language, you know. Like, our first language eval, we were already halfway done. <laughs> and it was like, no, nope, urge. So, it's just like, all right, God, whatever you're gonna do with these, this people group, all right, just keep going forward. Anybody else? 